We are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians tonight, so I encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this evening. We're going to be dealing with the last part of chapter 6 tonight, verses 12 through 20. And so after you have found that, why don't you stand with me and let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. <clears throat> all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. <clears throat> food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us tonight again as we worship, that our hearts would be um, focused on you, that... Uh, your Holy Spirit might be our teacher, that you might uh, illumine the truth of your word to our hearts and minds. Help us to be people that are faithful uh, to you and to your word. And Lord, as we think about uh, immorality, as we think about sexual immorality, is such a, a problem today as it was in the days of the first century. And uh, that really has not changed. But Lord, uh, you have given us your principles to live by. And you have um, given us the way to walk in holiness and purity, which you desire for us to do. So, Lord, we pray tonight as we go through this text again that uh, we might have a good grasp on its truth and that we might know how you would want us to live and how you would want us to uh, live and represent you in your church. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless again as we worship and as we study your word in jesus name we pray amen there are certain places in scripture where we have clear commands from god there are certain standards of right and wrong that are clearly delineated by almighty god and they are forever established in his word we don't have to wonder about those we don't have to guess they're clear there are certain places in the Bible where God simply says, this is right and this is wrong. And when we see commands like that in the Word of God, our response 
should be immediate and complete obedience. No debate, no rationalization, no hesitation. Obedience to his commands. But let me go on to say that although some commands like that are contained in Scripture, the Bible is not primarily a book of commands or rules. The Bible is primarily a book of principles, principles to live by. Now, there are three main reasons why this is true. First, if the Bible spelled out everything that is right and wrong in every circumstance, you would need a freight train to carry it all around. Or it would be too big and unwieldy to carry with you to church, right? You might hurt yourself. So the Bible doesn't deal with every single situation. If the Bible only consisted of rules spelling out everything that is right or wrong, it would apply to one age rather than to all of time. Why is that? Because things have changed throughout history. And although there are some basic things that stay the same, there are many things that change So what would apply in one age might not apply to another. For example, can you imagine someone in Corinth in the first century reading in Paul's epistle that you should not watch R-rated movies? They didn't know what an R-rated movie was. They didn't know what a movie was. So they would have no concept of what that means, but if it was given for our time, we would understand that. So you get the idea. Thirdly, if the Bible was only made up of rules and not principles, people would probably find loopholes for how to get around strict adherence to those rules. And as I'm sure you know, This was one of the problems of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were not only following the letter of the law, but they were rejecting the spirit of the law. They were constantly looking for ways to circumvent the law for their own advantage. And Jesus gave some examples of that. But here's the key. You can find loopholes in laws, but not in principles. You can't find loopholes in principles. It is just part of human nature to look for for loopholes. People are always, you know, looking for ways to uh, bend the rules. But listen, when God's Word gives us a principle, there's no way of circumventing it. Either you live by the principle or you don't. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, Paul is dealing primarily with the issue of sexual immorality. But at the same time, he gives some principles related to our physical bodies. 
And he widens out the application to include a lot of other things that can have drastic effect on our spiritual health and well-being. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to give you nine principles from this passage that are in effect God's principles for our bodies. You might call this what you should tell your body. First, we have the principle of expediency. Expediency. Look at the first part of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. The King James has, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. There's the word. The word expedient comes from the same root word as our word expedition. It means to go on a journey. It has in mind that which will bring you to your final destination. I mean, think about it. How do we make up our minds when something is right and when something is wrong? How do we decide that? One way to look at it is to ask what is lawful. We could go to the letter of the law and we could ask, is there something that the Bible says specifically about this? Is there some place in the Bible that says, I can't do this or I should not do this? Is there something in the Bible that says specifically uh, that this is condemned or that God condones this particular action? Of course, we know what the problem is with this because the Bible doesn't address most of our issues. There are very few instances where we can go to the Bible and get a direct, specific instruction for our circumstance. The Bible doesn't deal with every specific situation. And yet there are many Christians who have taken this approach and have said, well, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, I'm free to do it. Be careful. Because the principles of God's Word address this. And I know people who have, whose lives are totally messed up because they have taken the approach that says if the Bible doesn't clearly condemn a certain thing, I'm free to do it. This is why the principles of Scripture are so important. Paul says there are things that may be lawful for me, in other words, they're not specifically condemned in Scripture, but that does not mean I should participate in them. There are some higher principles to consider, and the first one is whether or not this action or this activity is going to profit me spiritually. Paul says that it's not simply a matter of looking at what is lawful. You also have to consider that whether it is going to be helpful or hurtful for your spiritual advancement. Is it going to be good for you spiritually? 
So you should ask yourself, is this something that will be an anchor that will keep me out of God's harbor or will it help to propel me toward my God-given goals? And that's the principle of expediency. We've got to ask, is this beneficial to me spiritually? But then we see the principle of enslavement. Look with me again at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The ESV has the word enslaved. There are things that are lawful. They're not specifically condemned in Scripture. Yet they're not good for me because they're enslaving. They can lead me to become enslaved. Paul says a second guideline to follow as we try to determine right from wrong is that we should not actively participate in anything that controls us. Anything that controls us. Anything that hinders us in our spiritual growth must be avoided. And anything that masters us other than Christ must be surrendered. You see, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to set us free. Let me ask you a question tonight. Are you free in Christ? Are you free in Christ? Or is there something in your life that has mastered you? Might be alcohol. Might be nicotine. Might be the TV. Might be sports. Might be eating too much. Might be laziness. It might be pornography or drugs or any number of other things, something that is controlling your life. Paul says that if anything masters you other than Christ, it is hindering you from being all that God wants you to be. It needs to be surrendered to his lordship. Listen, our freedom in Christ does not mean we have the license to do what we want. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. can't just do whatever you want. It's not what the Bible teaches. Paul is saying that we must never allow the liberty that he has given us to cause us to become enslaved to any bodily appetite or desire. We ought not to have any habits in our lives that are controlling us. We should be constantly evaluating our lives to see if there's anything other than Christ that is determining our behavior. Thirdly, we see the principle of excuses. Look with me at verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And look at the first phrase again. Food is for the stomach, and stomach the stomach is for food. Now, I'm calling this the principle of excuses, because that's exactly what this is. This phrase was their rationalization for sin. Their argument went something like this. 
Didn't God make food? Of course he did. And didn't God make the stomach with the natural desire to eat food? Yes. Well, then, if God made us that way, then we have to conclude that it must be God's will for us to eat. Right? Now, that sounds reasonable enough. But what they were doing then is they were saying, well, if that is true of our bodily desire for food, then our natural desire for sexual fulfillment must be the same way. And this was the way they were rationalizing their sexual immorality. Folks, this is as relevant today as it was back then. This kind of reasoning sounds like what we would hear today on a university campus. This is the kind of reasoning you hear all the time on a college campus. I mean, just listen to the words of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner just a few years ago. He said, quote, Sex is a function of the body, a drive which man shares with animals, like eating, drinking, and sleeping. It's a physical demand that must be satisfied. If you don't satisfy it, you'll have all sorts of neurosis and repression psychosis. Don't want that. He says, sex is here to stay. Let's forget the prudery that makes us hide from it. Throw away those inhibitions. Find a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. This is the playboy philosophy. Our world has embraced this, by the way. We've, we've long gone down that road. This has become the basic pattern of thinking today. But listen, just because God created us with a physical composition that includes a sex drive does not mean that we have the license to fulfill it any way we choose. Reasoning like this really is nothing but a high-sounding excuse. It is a rationalization that enables us to get what we want. The Corinthian culture, like ours, was saturated with sexual immorality. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, while we cannot excuse the Corinthians for their terrible sins, we can certainly understand why they fell into them. No city presented more opportunities for immorality and vice than did Corinth. He says the very religion of the city, the worship of Aphrodite, was nothing but prostitution in the name of religion. These believers had been rescued from lives of horrible sin, but they were tempted to go back. And Paul knew that some of the believers were looking for excuses to sin So he clearly refuted every argument they might bring up. Here, Paul derails their excuse by saying, While it is true that the stomach and food were made for each other, it is also true that their relationship is purely temporal. It is purely temporal. Uh, going to be passing away. Someday, 
when their purpose is fulfilled, God is going to do away with both of them, both food and the stomach. That biological process has no place in the eternal realm. But that is not true of the body itself. God has a purpose for the bodies of believers that is much higher than mere biological function. So Paul says the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. You see what this does? This establishes a spiritual relationship between your body and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual relationship between the two. There is a spiritual aspect to your physical body that was not present before you became a believer. But now it is present. There is a higher purpose for the use of your body than to use it for sexual immorality or any other use that does not honor Christ. And so the principle for us here is to let go of our excuses. We cannot rationalize sexual immorality by saying that it is simply a natural biological function like eating. And by the way, any other excuse is equally useless. Paul gives this one, but maybe there would be others that we might bring in as a rationalization for sin. So basically Paul is saying, forget the excuses and do God's will. Do what God says. Fourthly, we see the principle of enablement. Enablement. One of the most common excuses among Christians today is, well, I just can't help myself. Listen carefully. For a genuine believer in Christ, the idea that we just can't help ourselves is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It's a lie. Look with me at verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. You say, what is a verse about the resurrection doing in the middle of a passage about sexual immorality? Well, I believe it is a reminder to us that before we start to say, I just can't help myself, God says, remember the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead is the very same power that is available to give you victory over sin and the flesh. You, you never have the excuse, I just can't help myself. You can help yourself. Or at least you can do it through Christ and His strength. This is the, the principle of enablement. He has enabled us. He's given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We have all the resources we need. We can accomplish this through Christ. We are more than overcomers through Him. Fifthly, there is the principle of infidelity. Infidelity. Look with me at verse 15. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. In very graphic language, he's saying that when a person participates in sexual immorality, they are defiling Christ himself. That's what he's saying. He says that when you engage in sexual union with a harlot, for example, you are actually engaging the members of Christ himself with harlotry. Two people become one flesh. That applies not only in marriage, it also applies to an adulterous relationship or to fornication, which is sex before marriage. The two become one flesh. There is a oneness that is created, and that is a defilement of Christ in the process. And guess what, folks? No such thing as undoing that union. You know, I sometimes hear people today in Christian circles talking about secondary virginity. Folks, there is no such thing. You cannot undo fornication. You cannot undo adultery. A child once asked a man to pick a flower for her. That was simple enough. But then she said, now put it back. And the man experienced a baffling helplessness that he never knew before. How can you explain to a child it cannot be done? How can one make clear to young people that there are some things that when once broken, when once mutilated, can never be replaced or mended? They can never be undone. Of course, we know there's forgiveness for any sin, but the consequences of that sin can never be reversed. You know, we see that clearly in the story of King David. He was extremely sorrowful for his sin with Bathsheba, but the baby still died. There were consequences for the sin. So please understand, if you are a Christian, your sin not only affects you, it also affects Christ himself. Would you ever think about joining the members of Christ with harlot. May it never be, Paul says. Don't ever let that happen. Number six, the principle of escape. What is the first word of verse 18? What is it? Flee. Look at it. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Don't just turn aside from it. Don't just walk away from it. Don't just try to resist it. Flee from it. Run from it. Get away as fast as you can. Why? Because it is unique from every other kind of sin. In Paul's words, all other sins are outside the body, but this one is against the body. There's something about sexual sin that is so powerful and so condemning because of the nature of this sin. And what he's saying I believe, is that this is an acknowledgement of how deeply sexual sin goes to the very core of our being. No other sin that a person can commit has as many built-in problems and destructive potential as sexual sin. So God's advice for avoiding sexual involvement outside of its rightful bounds in marriage is to stay as far away from it as possible. Stay away from people and places that are likely to get you into trouble. And by the way, I personally believe that that includes allowing your children to begin dating too early, or maybe even dating at all. I mean, how often do young teens get themselves in trouble by getting into a tempting situation this way. But the principle here is to get yourself out of any environment where you are likely to be tempted sexually. That means there are places you should not go. It means there are certain things you should not watch on TV or at the movies. It means there are certain people that you should avoid being with. It means there are certain situations in which you should not place yourself. We talked about this Saturday morning, but, you know, in Proverbs, it talks about the man who was seduced, the foolish man who was seduced by uh, a harlot. And, and of all things, he's on the street corner in the middle of the night. What else would you expect is going to happen? He's going to be tempted to sin. Keep yourself out of those situations. Principle number seven, the principle of indwelling. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I mean, think about this. God himself has taken residence in you. He's taken up residence in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. What would you think if you came to church next Sunday and you walked in here and there was garbage all over the place? There was trash and filth and sewage and everything just all over the auditorium. What would you think about that? Would you be okay with that? Or what would you think if you came in here to worship next Sunday and there were people in here committing sexual sins? What would you think about that? Folks, as detestable as that is, even to think about, this is exactly what Paul's saying here. 
He's saying that all sexual sin is abhorrent to God because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it doesn't matter whether sexual sin is committed in a back alley or in some more, quote, respectable place. All sexual sin by believers is committed in the presence of the indwelling Spirit of God. This is this is what we must consider about who we are. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Principle number eight, the principle of entitlement. Entitlement. Notice the last part of verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. And that you are not your own, or you have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own possession. We've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ now owns the title to our bodies. They no longer belong to us. Now, back in Paul's day, a slave could be could set himself free by using his money and depositing it with the priest at the local heathen temple. And when he had enough money to purchase his freedom, he would take his master to the temple and the priest would give the master the money and would then declare that the slave now belongs to that particular God. This is what is being pictured here. The Son of God has paid the price to purchase us and to set us free from our former master, sin. But as a result of this, we are now to please our new master in how we use our bodies. As the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. Now, you've probably seen signs like this before, maybe in a store window, but... When a company takes over another company, many times there's a sign that's placed on the premises of the business announcing under new management. No sign so accurately summarizes what takes place at Christian conversion. We become under new management. When Christ takes over a life, that life is literally under new management, His management. He is Lord, and we must submit to His Lordship. And yet, you know, it's amazing how hard it is for us to learn this lesson and to acknowledge that new authority in our lives. How hard it is... For those who have obeyed the flesh for so long to begin now obeying Jesus Christ. But that is what is required for every Christian. Jesus Christ has purchased us with his shed blood on Calvary. 
And that leads us to the last principle, which is the principle of exaltation. The principle of exaltation. If all this is true, which it is, then what is the conclusion? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. This will answer a thousand questions concerning the body right here. Rather than asking a certain, whether a, a certain dress is the latest style, you should rather ask, will this glorify God? Rather than asking who else is doing this, you should ask, will this glorify God? Instead of asking if this activity is something that will make me feel good, you should ask, will this glorify God? See, what you see with your eyes, hear with your ears, say with your lips, do with your body, should all be for the glory of God. Paul put it another way in the letter to the Romans. He said this, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Folks, it matters what we do with our bodies. We must glorify God in our bodies. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this evening that you help us to be pure, to walk in holiness, that we might uh, follow these principles. And Lord, we thank you that you give us principles and not just simple rules. You give us principles to live by and help us to be wise and this age and and to overcome all the uh, temptation and pressure uh, to get involved in sexual immorality. We pray for singles today that they would uh, remain pure, that they would uh, say no to the sexual temptations that come their way. We we pray for uh, married adults that we also would would walk in the the, the purity of of marriage and. And stay within the bounds that you have given to us. So, Lord, we know you have created us a certain way. You've created us with sexual desires. But you've given us your principles to live by. And we ask you would help us now as we seek to live by them this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.